3. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. We're continuing our series today on life together and being in relationship with one another and what it means to be part of the body of Christ. Um, I'll read this here, Mark chapter 3, starting with verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven all their sins and all their blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, but is guilty of eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Now, this is a heavy passage for me to have chose this morning, but uh, I think there's some really significant reflections uh, for us today. Jesus here has just begun his public ministry. See, it's, our, it's only chapter three, and he's just started his public ministry. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's gathered disciples to himself, and really, this is just starting to ramp up. And his family labels him as crazy, as mad, as insane. You can kind of put yourself in their shoes and maybe think that they're feeling sorry for him a little bit. They're scared for him. They're worried for him. They care about him, but they're scared. They're fearful. They're stressed. So they use a label. There's a lot of risk here for them and for Jesus, right? Um, And this label comes out of their fear, out of their worry. They're thinking, why is he acting this way? This doesn't make sense. This doesn't fit with our framework of how God is supposed to work. Why is he acting like this? So the stakes are high for them. But also, on the other end, the stakes are high for the scribes in this story. Jesus is not doing things the right way. He's acting outside of the temple, outside of the temple protocol. There was a protocol for these kind of things. If people were healed, it was in the temple and it was within the system. Jesus is doing it outside of that. That doesn't make sense to us. He's actually undermining and threatening our whole system, our whole way of life. So they're thinking, as far as we know, God does not work this way. He doesn't act this way. So he must be beelzebul. He must be from the chief demon. That that must be who he is. In fact, a rabbinic tradition, Jewish rabbinic tradition, tells us about this time that Jesus, it says that Jesus was actually killed and hung for the practice of sorcery. That's how it's it's described in, in Jewish literature. And this tradition, actually, historically, is one of the confirmations that we have that Jesus was seen as a miracle worker in the historical record. Um, And also, I think in a strange way, this story actually helps us to see the validity of the gospel story. Um, The gospel of Mark was not just made up. It wasn't just created and just a really creative kind of story. We believe that these things actually happened. Um, Because one of the reasons why we believe this is that the early church probably would not have invented a story where Jesus, their leader, the one they put their hope in as the Messiah, was seen by everybody else as crazy and insane. Okay, if you think about in, in, in our life, if you were to try to convince somebody of something and say, man, I really want to put my trust in this guy. I really 
believe, I believe in him, I really believe in what he's doing. Everybody else thinks he's crazy, even his own family, but you should trust him, right? That would not probably be the best evangelistic tool, but that's kind of what's going on here. So what we believe is that if they wouldn't have done it that way, that means this story might just be true. It might just be accurate. Also, we see that the scribes here refuse to call him evil. They could have easily just said Jesus is evil. They don't specifically go that far. Instead, they're trying to find a box for him. They're trying to find a label for him. So they come up with this idea that he's an undercover agent of the chief demon, Satan, or or Satan, the chief demon. Um, There has to be some sort of category. So there's this maneuvering. There's, okay, he's driving out demons, and he's doing it successfully, but he has to be bad because he's not doing the things the way that they're supposed to be done. So he's an uh, undercover Beelzebub guy. That's who he is. And that's the label that they give him. Now, when they have a label for Jesus, it makes it easier for them to justify to do whatever they want to him. When they have a label for him, when they say, he's not even really human, what he's doing is deceptive, he has to be stopped at all costs, we begin to see picture of the cross come into play. We begin to see here at the beginning of Mark's gospel what will happen at the end. And we can see the wheels turning in the scribe's mind. We use labels when the stakes are high, when we're stressed, when we don't know what to do with the thing in front of us or the situation in front of us or the person in front of us, we label them. We find a box to put them in. And when we find a box for them, it makes it easier for us to not really have to get to know them as a person. Have you ever been labeled before? Rightly, wrongly? We're in a labeling culture. Sometimes we can label somebody and then make assumptions about who they are as a person without actually getting to know them because we've simply used a label. We have a lot of cultural labels going on right now. Um, uh, Cultural labels like a hipster, right? Or yuppie or preppy or whatever kind of label you can think of. There's generational labels. Well, they're a baby boomer, so they think this way. Or they're Generation X or they're millennials. There's ethnic labels, right? Uh, African-American, Latino, white. There's political labels, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative. How about gay or straight, right? There's a lot of these labels that we use in our culture. And the problems here are not with the words themselves. The words actually can be fine descriptors. They're descriptions of something or of an ideology. They describe something about a person. But the problem comes when we use these descriptors, when we use these words as a label to objectify somebody. When we believe that a person, who a person is, is completely and totally defined by that box or by that label. Eugene Peterson, who translated the the Message Bible, he says that when I'm in relationship with you, I use the words I and you. That means I'm treating you as a person. I'm in a relationship with you, I and you. Um, When we think in terms of I and you, we're using relational terms. But often in our culture, we don't often think in terms of I and you. Sometimes we speak or think in terms of I and it, right? We objectify someone. We see them only as the label that we've placed on them or an object. Or, here's another one, we see it as us and them, right? You agree with me, so you're part of the us group, and then they're over there, they don't agree with me, they're part of the them group. And that's the language that we use. Um, Peterson says, I, it, turns persons into things. So that I can control or use or dismiss or ignore them. It is the basic word that is particularly attractive in buying and selling. 
but it infiltrates every sector of life. When it infiltrates our congregation, the men and women with whom we worship and work become objectified. Instead of being primarily persons whom we love, whether through natural affection, our spouse, our children, or friends, or by Christ's command, love your neighbor as yourself, they gradually become functionalized. Under the pressure of working for Jesus or carrying out the church's mission, we begin to treat our family members and fellow workers more like parts of a machine than parts of a body. We develop a vocabulary that treats men and women and children more like problems to be fixed or resources to be used than as participants in a holy mystery. We develop an extensive I-it vocabulary to facilitate the depersonalization. Assets and liabilities, point man or woman, dysfunctional, leadership material, dead weight. Love, the commanded relation, gives way to considerations of efficiency interpreted by abstractions, plans and programs, goals and visions, evangelism, statistics, and mission strategies. Us, them, on the other hand, turns others into the enemy. It is the basic word that demonizes others. It is prominent in military and religious wars, in political conflicts and ideological battles. It abolishes language as a way to tell the truth. Sometimes, in addition to labeling others, I wonder if we label God. We retreat to a formula that feels right to us or a label that we can put on God. Sometimes we label other people in the ways that they label God. Here's what I mean by that. Um, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? Some of you don't know what that, may not know what that means, but those are like uh, ideological labels, philosophical labels, right? Um, are you an evangelical or a liberal? Which, which box do you put God in? Which denomination are you part of would give you that label? Are you a spirit-filled Christian or not? Which label do you ascribe to? Sometimes we label God by making him in our own image. We want God to look just like us. God likes the people we like, and he doesn't like the people we don't like. There's a quote, I think it's attributed to Anne Lamott, who said, God created humans in his own image, and we return the favor. Right? We want to paint God exactly like we are. There are some, um, sometimes when we do this, it's, there's an overemphasis on God's justice. There can be a lot of talk about God's wrath. You might hear some um, people of faith speak of, of God this way. But God's justice throughout the scriptural story is rooted in something. It's rooted in God's faithfulness, in God's love to his people, um, in, in what he does, his action over and over again. And if it ultimately is rooted in the person of Jesus who gave up his life for the world. When we forget about that, when we forget about what God's justice is rooted in and who God's justice is rooted in, um, talking about God's justice can just be an unhealthy desire for God to punish the people that we don't like. Right? It's rooted in something. On the other side, we can have a short-sighted view of God's love. God's love is also rooted in something. If we forget that, it can be dangerous as well. God's love is not just warm feelings or sentimentalism. Sometimes when we talk about love in our culture, I think it's like kind of a uh, surface gentleness is really what we're talking about. We're not talking about this deep concept of love. I think about the uh, Hallmark aisle at the store, and, and I go and I see all the different Hallmark cards. I have nothing against Hallmark. You know, they're nice. I'm sure they're nice, wonderful people. But the, some of the language is just so sentimental and, and servicey. And, and if I get a card, I want those words to be rooted in the relationship that I already have, right? And maybe those words help describe that relationship, and that can be a beautiful thing. But love has to be rooted in something. It's not just 
on the surface. God's love is rooted in his action on the cross, which means that love is about self-sacrifice. It's about giving up yourself. That's what God's love means. This is what God's love looks like, God laying down his life for us. So here in this story, the scribes have labeled Jesus as bad, as an undercover agent of Beelzebul. And because of that label that they've created, uh, they've kind of blinded themselves to who God truly is and what he's doing. They have blinders on. But we see that Jesus doesn't do the same thing. He doesn't respond in the same way. I think sometimes when we're labeled, when we feel like somebody has labeled us in the wrong way, then we respond by labeling them back, right? So if somebody says, well, you're just a, you're just a conservative, right? Then we come back and say, well, you're just a hyper-liberal is what you are, right? And then we go back and forth. If somebody says, well, you're a sinner, well, you're, you're a Pharisee or you're a legalist, right? Um, and sometimes when we do that, we get into this cycle of name-calling, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, but we get in this cycle of name-calling where we respond and they respond, and neither of us is truly trying to get to know the other person, Right? What they did when they labeled you in the first place is they refused to actually get to know you as a person. But what you're doing is the exact same thing, right? We can't get into that cycle. That's playing the same game that they are. So what Jesus does do is he kind of unpacks their logic here. He calls out their assertion that he's working for the devil. The word here is Satan, and the word uh, literally in the Greek means the accuser. And by this time in the first century, this word, the accuser, had become a proper noun. It was the one who opposes God. Everything that breaks down and destroys, that is who this this comes from, the accuser. Now, there are stories from church history about Lucifer, and a lot of people kind of ascribe this, the accuser, to him, and, and we won't go there today. But basically, the accuser, Satan, is the one who accuses. Makes sense, right? The one who causes people to doubt their identity and the one who causes people to doubt God's reality and what God is doing. That is this guy's job. So what he says, Jesus is like, would, would Satan, would the accuser, cast out demons? Isn't he like the demon guy? Isn't that where demons come from is him? Would, would he be doing that? Why would he even want to do that? So Jesus tells an allegory. He says, there's a strong man who has this house, and there's a stronger man who must first tie him up, tie up that strong man, in order to plunder his house. So in this allegory, Satan is the strong man and Jesus is the stronger man. And he's here to subvert the kingdom of darkness. It's interesting, if you read each of the Gospels individually, there's really specific themes in each of them. And sometimes they kind of point forward in the Gospel or backwards in the Gospel. And in Mark chapter 1, actually, we see John the Baptist say, the one that's stronger than I is coming and speaking of Jesus. And so stronger man is kind of a small theme in Mark for who Jesus is. We're also led to believe in the narrative that the first step of toppling the kingdom of darkness, um, this tying up the strong man that Jesus does, was at Jesus's temptation. When Jesus is tempted and he overcomes the temptation, it's kind of like tying up the strong man. Um, And ultimately, Satan was defeated at the cross and the resurrection. And Jesus asks, If Satan is fighting himself, so let's say hypothetically I am working for Satan. If Satan is fighting himself, isn't that good news? Right? Because if a civil war breaks out among this Satan kingdom, doesn't that mean that the kingdom's about to fall, about to crumble? So even if what you're saying is true, the kingdom of Satan's about to come to an end. That's good news, right? That's what he's basically saying to them. 
Now, of course, they're wrong about Jesus. Okay, he's not of the devil, and he's not crazy. And one of the contrasts I think that we see here is that the kingdom of Satan or darkness, whatever you want to call it, is always breaking apart. That's what it does. It destroys, it tears apart, it breaks things down. But the kingdom of the spirit is very different. It seems like it's bringing things together. It's making things right. It's making things whole. St. Augustine said, the Holy Spirit, however, is not divided against himself. Rather, he makes those whom he gathers together undivided against himself by dwelling within those who have been cleansed, that they may be like those of whom it is written in the Acts of the Apostles, the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Plus, and maybe this is an obvious question, but shouldn't they know that casting out demons is a good thing? Um, these people are tormented. Jesus is healing them. He's restoring them. Healing, restoration, good things, right? Right? This is a good thing. But these people are so blinded by their hatred of Jesus and their suspicion of him because he doesn't fit their preconceived categories that they can't even tell good from evil anymore. Now, people get into lots of different debates about what Jesus means here by blaspheming the Holy Spirit and this sin that's unforgivable. That's a really heavy part of this passage. Um, I remember as a kid, and the other um, campuses didn't really respond to this, so we'll see. Uh, but I remember as a kid hanging out with a, a group of kids, and I grew up in a church, charismatic church, and there was a lot of speaking in tongues that happened. And uh, we, um, uh, you know, when you get, when you're new to that experience or when you're young, that it can be a powerful and beautiful experience speaking in tongues, but it can also look like a very strange and funny experience at the same time, right? Yes? Okay. Um, and so as a kid, we are kind of watching this happening and, and participating in it. And then uh, we kind of as a group started to mimic in a funny way our, our leaders, right? The, the kind of the ways that they were speaking in tongues. And so we do that. And then a Sunday school teacher came up to us and snapped at us and said, um, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's what she said. So um, I was a kid who was pretty good at Bible quiz and Bible Bowl growing up. So I knew this, this story, <laughs> and that caused me a lot of nightmares because I was thinking, <laughs> I committed the unforgivable sin, and I'm going to be in hell forever. <laughs> <sighs> so please tell your kids that that's not what this is talking about or some of those kind of things. We have to look at what is Jesus addressing here. He's pointing out that the scribes are confusing the work of the Holy Spirit with the work of Satan. That's a big mistake. That's dangerous to do. When you confuse God's work, healing, redemption, bringing things together, making things right, making them whole, the kingdom of God moving forward, with the work of Satan, tearing things apart, breaking them apart, you're in big trouble. When you start to think that freeing people from what oppresses them is bad, you're going down a dangerous path. That's really trendy right now to have conspiracy theories. Right? There's a lot of people that have those. And uh, most of us probably at least have two or three friends that are really into really extreme conspiracy theories. Uh, friends on Facebook, probably. Um, and, and a conspiracy theory is, is really this idea that there's this covert plan somewhere under every news story and every event that happens to take over the world. Okay? Um, and so what happens is if, if you hold a crazy conspiracy theory, a really extreme conspiracy theory, then everywhere you look, you will find evidence of that theory. Have you noticed that? 
If you have those blinders on and you really believe that, then everywhere you look, you will find the evidence that you need. You'll be so blinded to outside evidence that all you can see is what you've already been convinced of. And that's the problem with the scribes here. They have confused the work of Satan and the work of God. N.T. Wright says of this whole blaspheming the Holy Spirit and eternal sin thing, he says, it isn't that God gets especially angry with one sin in particular. It's rather that if you decide firmly that the doctor who's offering to perform a life-saving operation on you is in fact a sadistic murderer, you will never give your consent to the operation. Right? When your own fear blinds you to your ability to see God, you're headed down a path of no hope, Jesus is saying. And at this point, forgiveness is not close to you because you've blinded yourself to it. So part of the message here is God wants to do surgery on you. Um, and we have to, in order to do that, we have to trust that he is good, that he is faithful. Now, verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and mother. Now, to me, this seems like a pretty shocking statement, right? Um, at least at first glance. It looks to me at first glance like Jesus is disowning his family here. Is he really rejecting his family? And as strongly as that hits us in the Western world, I think in the first century, it would have hit them even stronger. And here's part of the reason why. In our Western world, it's pretty normal for us to separate from our families at some point. Um, I have a sister who's here this morning who lives in Michigan. Actually, I have two sisters. One of them lives in Michigan. Yes. Yeah, we could clap for her. <laughs> um, and, and when she moved away, we grieved. And it was very sad, and it was really hard. But it was also seen as normal in some ways, right? That it was, um, she was growing up. She was getting out on her own, and she was taking this kind of step as an adult. Um, when we got married, I moved out of the house. Thankful for that. Right? That's a good thing to do. Love my parents. But, um, and I'm happy that I don't still live with them. There's a normal separation that happens at some point. I moved out on my own. I separated. My brother, Spencer, who was married yesterday, and we were so blessed to have Amber as part of our family. Um, there, there was kind of this process of he's kind of stepping out on his own. He's separating. He's moving out. And actually, one of the things that shocked me as I began to talk to him over the past few weeks is how many adult, grown-up things that he's like doing. So like, he, uh, he put down a, I said, whoa, you put down a, a deposit on an apartment. That's awesome, man. You're grown up now. I'm like, dude, you have a bank account? <laughs> That's awesome. I uh, found out he's had a bank account for a long time. I just never really realized it. Um, but that's natural in our culture, right? In this culture, it was very different because family was everything. Your identity was wrapped up and defined by who your parents were. The family unit was also your business. So if, you were, um, if your dad was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. If one day you said, you know, I feel led to be a blacksmith. No, no, you, you are part of this family. This is what we do. Often you lived next door. You lived in the same house as your parents. You were always connected with them. And here was something interesting about that culture. That was seen as part of God's calling. When God called Abraham, he didn't just call Abraham as an individual. He called Abraham's family. You are part of a family, and this is 
your identity. Your association with your family was somehow connected to your association with God. But we see that Jesus was all about challenging the Jewish cultural norms at the time. He had challenged not the idea of observing the Sabbath, but how the Sabbath was observed. He had challenged not the intention of the food laws originally, but the way the food laws were being practiced. He, cha- he was challenging the very fabric here of the Jewish cultural life, the family. And I don't know about you, but the first person I think about is Mary. Mary had many times of great faith, but here, maybe she's having a time of great doubt. She thought that her son was crazy. And I don't think that she forgot the angel who appeared to her. I don't think she forgot the promises that came out of this song that she sang in response to God's grace. I don't think she forgot those things. So why is she acting this way? Perhaps it's because things are not progressing the way that she thought they would progress. Jesus is not acting like she thought that he would. And the stakes are really high. Her reputation had taken a lot of hits throughout his life. And obviously, his reputation was taking some great hits. And this was one of the biggest right here. But we have to realize that just like everything else, Jesus is not doing away with the Jewish tradition. He is subverting it, challenging it. The family of God, this idea that we are all part of a family and we are called as a family is an incredible concept and it's central to the Christian faith. But Jesus is saying God is creating a new family that's not just bound together by blood but is bound together by grace, that is bound together by those who choose to follow Yahweh. Eugene Peterson says, In our identity-confused society, too many of us have settled for a pastiche identity composed of social security numbers, medical records, academic degrees, job history, and whatever fragments of genealogy we can salvage from the cemetery. Christians can do better. We are baptized baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By virtue of that name, not our family name, we are saints. So this new community, I don't think, I don't think Jesus is rejecting Mary as his mother here. I don't think he's rejecting his brother. But he's saying that this grace is actually a bigger thing than blood. This new community even goes beyond that. And so you that are following in the way of God, you are my family. This community gets past family labels. Not a family of blood, but of grace. Now, this means that there's a lot of other people in our life and back then who were given a lot of other labels earlier, and they fell into a lot of other cultural categories, and they're now being called to let those labels aside and follow Jesus. Um, We see this in the early Christian community. God called people who had other labels to be part of this community. So a tax collector. Tax collector had a really sleazy reputation. They were seen as somebody who had sold out to the Roman government and uh, they really couldn't be trusted, Jesus calls them a sinner, prostitute, zealots. A zealot's job was to kill tax collectors, so that was probably awkward, right? A Pharisee. A Pharisee was a sect of religious and political life that believed that if only the people would obey the law of God to the letter, then they would be free. Jesus calls them the eunuch in the book of Acts one who is casted aside because of their sexuality. Jesus calls him a Gentile. Gentile just means outsider, somebody who's not part of the in-group. They are called Samaritans, not only outsiders, but Samaritans are seen as the enemy of the Jewish people, the black sheep in the family. They are being called to participate. Shepherds, 
Shepherds weren't allowed to testify, weren't allowed to testify in a court of law. <laughs> so if you showed up and you were a shepherd and you had something to say about a case, they'd say, no, you're a shepherd, sit down, we can't trust you. A fisherman, fishermen were poor and uneducated. They are called to participate. All are invited to shed their boxes, to shed their labels, and to join this community of grace. Here's the cool thing. We are this community. We are this new community, the church. One of the things that some people find frustrating, I think, about sanctuary is that we don't fit a lot of religious labels. We can't really easily categorize who we are. Are we a charismatic church? Yes, but we're also contemplative and quiet. Are you evangelical? Yes, but we're also deeply sacramental, too. Are you contemporary? Yes, and we're liturgical. Any of you found yourself in a situation where you've had to answer that kind of question? What kind of church do you go to? It's, it's hard to do. But also, if you look around, you'll see we're not one demographic either, right? Um, we are, many of you are given a lot of other diverse labels in your culture. We're not one age demographic. We're not one social group. We're diverse. And the challenge with this in a church is it's a lot more work. If we were bound together by affinity, we all like the same thing, or demographic, and we're all about the same age and life stage, or one particular denominational stream, it might be easier. But when you are bound together only by the gospel and a desire to follow the person of Jesus Christ, it's a lot more work, a lot harder to do. But I believe that's the call of the gospel. Um, a bunch of people who don't fit anywhere else. Or maybe we did fit a lot of other places, and we're choosing to make our primary identity as a follower of Jesus. When you do that, some people might think you're crazy. But we're a people who don't fit the boxes, but we're defined by our pursuit of the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your presence in our midst. Thankful for your Holy Spirit at work in our lives and in the world. Thank you that you are a God who heals and transforms and brings things together and restores. So Lord, we trust in you. Today we come with, a lot of us are given a lot of other labels in our culture. We fit in a lot of other groups. And today we make a commitment to say that following you is our primary identity. And Lord, I know today there are a lot of people in here that um, maybe they are either new to faith or they're kind of just trying to figure this thing out. They're even wondering if this Christianity thing is for them. And, but for those of us that have made that decision, Lord, we choose that that, we want to give our whole lives completely to that. Will you define for us what justice is, what love is, what grace is? We constantly choose to look back to you. We trust you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. Lift our voices. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We go today, as always, we want to remind you of God's blessing for your life. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you safe in his arms. May he make his beautiful face shine on you. 
May he be gracious to you. May we be a community that's bound together by the grace of Jesus Christ. May he turn his countenance towards you so that you know that you're not in this life alone. And may he give you peace, a peace that passes all of your understanding. May it guard your heart and guard your mind in Christ Jesus. Go in peace today. If you need prayer for anything, our prayer team will be here at the front. Have a good day.